0: Hi everyone. Um, So we're going to read from Deuteronomy chapter 5, and we're reading verses 1 to 22. I might stand over here, so I'm less in the way. Um, Okay, so starting at verse 1. And Moses summoned all Israel, and he said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. The Lord our God made the covenant with us in Horeb. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us who are all here today and alive today. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, while I stood between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord. For you were afraid because of the fire and you did not go up to the mountain. He said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or is that on, that is on earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. As the Lord your God commands you, six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any other of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Honour your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you, that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder you shall not commit adultery you shall not steal and you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor and you shall not covet your neighbor's wife and you shall not desire your neighbor's house his field or his male servant or his female servant his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbors these words the lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain out of the midst of the fire the cloud and the thick darkness with a loud voice, and he added no more. And he wrote them in on two tablets of stone and gave them to me.
1: Thanks, Alicia. And good day, everyone. My name is Jacob. If we haven't met before, um, great to be here with you guys and continuing through the book of Deuteronomy. Hopefully, you're enjoying being in Deuteronomy so far. We're only early days still, but... Um, uh, hopefully in your groups through the week, you got a bit stuck in, maybe some of you guys as well doing the, the readings through Deuteronomy that Anna's put together. Um, it's an interesting place to be. There's a, there's a whole lot of really interesting stuff in this book that we're going to be going through week in and week out and between now and the end of the year. And today we're going to be looking at this passage, which is one of the kind of, in, on one level, one of the most well-known parts of the Bible, the Ten Commandments. Um, and so we're going to be getting into that, but how about us pray? got God be with us as we look at his word. Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you for your word, uh, for the freedom in the country that we live in to come and, and sit in a room together and to read these words aloud, to reflect on them, to think about them, um, and to encourage one another uh, to live them out. And we just pray that you'd just be with us in this moment, um, directly speaking to the hearts, minds, and souls of every single person in this room, um, that we might know you more and trust you more as our good and loving God. Amen. Now, it's already semi-old news because things move pretty quick, but I'm guessing most people caught some of the, the news a few weeks ago about the Essendon Saga those who didn't, maybe don't follow Melbourne Rules Football, uh, Andrew Thorburn was appointed the CEO of the Essendon Football Club uh, and then resigned 24 hours later. And the reason he resigned was that he got a lot of backlash from the media and people within the club uh, for the fact that he was also um, uh, the chair of the board of a church that's not entirely dissimilar to ours. And what happened in that situation was he was, I think, given an ultimatum to really just choose between his role serving in the church and his role at the club um, because it was saying that they were fundamentally at odds with each other. There's a whole lot of things that kind of opened up and a lot of commentary and a lot of thoughts and opinions. um, But one of the things that that just happened in light of what happened there was that it opened a little bit of a window to kind of see what people are thinking and believing in the society around us. And one of the things that I think it highlighted is that we've got a real confusion in our society around the topic of morality, where the church is at odds pretty fundamentally with the world that we inhabit. And I'm not just talking about the obvious issues. The the things that really were kind of highlighted in in that story was um, the church's stance on on abortion and on same-sex marriage. And it's not really that surprising that that was a kind of a, a point of conflict between the church and the world in those, in those kind of areas. But I think more than that, one of, the, one of the, I guess, discussions that came out of it was more just not around, I guess, these particular issues that the church differs with the world about, but really about the nature of morality itself, something a bit more upstream. That the difference between what the church believes and what the world believes isn't just a difference about what things are right and what things are wrong, but what makes something right or wrong. There's a clip that came up on on my Facebook um, from uh, an interview with with Koshy on whatever morning program he he does, um, where he was interviewing the, the pastor of the church that Andrew Thorburn was at. And it's a pretty hostile interview. You can go, go look it up. It's kind of challenging viewings in some ways. But one of the the kind of thread of Koshy's argument was he was saying to this past, "Look, kind of just get with the times." He said that the Bible is it's a 2,000-year-old document. You don't have to take it seriously. Now I thought that was a bit ironic from the host of a morning TV program, which is about as archaic a form of communication as you can imagine, and people in glass houses and that. But um, but. His, his sentiment was echoed by a whole bunch of other people in different kind of news outlets and that kind of thing, saying the Christian position, which is the minority position in, in Australia at the moment, um, is, is out of step because it is holding to a, set a, a moral code, if you will, that is from something quite a long time ago. And that to, to hold to an absolute set of moral values that are out of step with the majority is actually what a lot of people are saying is abhorrent. And so the, the fundamental difference between Christians and the world isn't just what you make on maybe an issue like uh, abortion, which is the example that got a lot of attention, but it's what, what do you make about morality? Where does morality come from? Who gets to, who gets to say what is right and what is wrong? Will, will it be in something fixed like, like the Bible or some other religious text? Or is, is morality and what is right and wrong something which should be updated and changed and constantly evolving? And I think most of us, if you're a person here who would describe yourself as a Christian, this is something we feel, I think, intrinsically uncomfortable about. It makes us uncomfortable that the Bible does have, in, in different parts of it, sets of laws or instructions or black and white statements of, of moral absolute. And they are often out of step with 21st century culture. We love the parts of the Bible that speak about grace and hospitality and mercy and encourage and appreciation of nature and all the many good things that are in there, but we treat the parts of the Bible that make these big moral claims a bit like a defect. It's like when you're showing someone around a car that you've got for sale, you're like, look, we've just put new tires on, here's the service history, it's really good. We've got, like, I've updated the CD player so you can plug your iPod into it. And then you get to the, you leave to the last of the issue, you're like, oh, just ignore the blood stain in the boot or whatever it is. There's just, there's just one part of your car or one part of its history that you're hoping they don't notice because there's so many things that are good about it. And I think that's what we often do with the law as Christians. It's like we've got all these great features of Christianity, just don't like, look under the hood too deeply in this one particular area because we don't feel comfortable about it. And so the question I want to answer today as we get into the in book of Deuteronomy, which a lot of it is going to be laws, and as we begin that section with the Ten Commandments, it's just answering a simple question, is the law good? Is the Bible's moral code like a plague on our society that just needs to be eradicated? Or is it possible that the laws that we see are actually on one level good and beautiful and life-giving? And what I want to hopefully show you is that the, the God's law, as summed up here in the Ten Commandments, is actually the path to life. And so if you're a note taker, I've got four clear points today. We're going the source of the law the goodness of the law, the problem with the law, and the hope of the law. So Rob really helpfully gave us a bit of context in the book of Deuteronomy. Um, last week we, we saw where we're up to is that Moses is on the on the edge of the desert about to enter into the promised land with a group of people who 40 years earlier rebelled against God and didn't enter. So over that 40 years, one generation has died off, another one has grown up, and Moses is standing with this group of people to say, look, let's... Let's try this again, and here's some pretty clear options. There's one, one way of living, one way of acting, which is going to be towards life, and there's going to be another one which is going to be repeating this cycle of judgment. And so he's saying, basically, through this whole book of Deuteronomy, choose life. And what he does as he's recounting to the Israelites what has happened in their story, he gets to this section where he's reminding them of how 40 years earlier God gave them a law. And so the first thing we see is where this law comes from. So I'm going to reread again from verse 5. It says, And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us, who are all of us here alive today. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, when I stood between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord, for you were afraid because of the fire, and you did not go up to the mountain. So, the first thing that Moses is just trying to highlight before he gets into the actual content of the law is where this law came from. Um, because w- knowing where the law comes from is what determines whether it's something worth listening to. Uh, it matters where rules are coming from. In, in peak COVID, if you can remember back to the last couple of years, one of the things that was just a big part of that was just all the constantly changing laws that we had to fit ourselves into at different points. And there was it was changing week by week, but there was one particular time, where it, I think it went for quite a while, where the rule was basically you had to wear masks indoors. And you didn't have to wear them outdoors, you had to wear them indoors. I was across the rules. But it was also a time when tensions were a bit high because no one was liking wearing masks and that kind of thing. And people were a bit whatever and so uh, there's just one day I was in the car park the outdoor car park of a shopping center having come out of the shops with shopping with my wife Sarah who gets embarrassed with this story and we were just putting putting sh- going to the car putting the shopping away when a lady comes up to me and says quite angrily and aggressively i thought you should be wearing a mask and so i just said excuse me, because I didn't know what was going on. And she said, again, you should be wearing a mask. And so then I, because I was maybe a bit testy, so I was like, well, who says? And she said, I say. And so that, that, that got us to a bit of a roadblock in the conversation <laughs> where if she had said at that point, well, you know, you may not have heard, they've changed the laws this morning, you've got to wear a mask outside now. Or if she'd said, oh, look, if you look around the corner, there's a sign you may have missed it that says, please wear a mask in this car park then I would have said, oh, all right, yep, you're right, I missed it, my bad. But we hit this kind of weird, weird junction where she only appealed to herself and saying, I say, where I said, well, what is that to me? It just got really, we ended up just standing there just uncomfortably with, with nowhere, nowhere to go in the conversation. In the end, just got in the car and went away. But when someone, when someone tells you to do something, it is a fair enough question to ask the question, who says? Who um, says? To say, well, like, yeah, sure, you, anyone can have an opinion on on what should be done or how things are, but 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 why? And I think this is one of the challenges that our culture really has on like a, on a pretty big level. Where on one level, we're in a very moral culture. We've people have got very strong views about what is right, what is wrong, and there are plenty of things that we even just kind of really all share on a pretty, you know, universal level. Like things like that. All people have human rights, or um, you know, things like you shouldn't own slaves or you shouldn't discriminate against someone because of their race. These are things we all take for granted. But one of the things that our, our society struggles with is when you press against that, and if you want to say who says, people really struggle to kind of answer, to answer the kind of underlying why, between why, why should we all bend ourselves around these standards? And we live in a society where most people don't believe necessarily in, in objective truth, but that runs into problem when you really push into these areas. To, to answer the question, you know, we all agree that the Holocaust was evil, but to say why was it evil? If an, if the answer is well, because I feel it is, or because we all feel it is, or because we've evolved to feel it is, it comes up pretty short, I feel. So what Moses is trying to say. As he introduces this, is that there is an actual objective standard. That's why he's evoking God here. He's saying that these commandments aren't just um, our our best effort working together to come up with some way to live. He's not just saying this is just for he, us here in the moment, what we've decided. He's pointing to a lawgiver, some someone a being outside of our own kind of whims and and and, and preferences. Say there is an objective standard. There are things that are right and things that are wrong and they're independent of culture. And so that's why he's saying, look, just remember, we actually met with God on a mountain. He appeared in fire. You heard his voice from the top of a mountain. Like this is is big. This isn't just something you can take it or leave it. This is objective moral truth that the Lord has spoken. The only one who actually has the ultimate authority to say how we should live as people because he's the one who made us. So that's the source of the law. This is actually has its origin in the God who made us. But then Moses moves into the content of the law, and I think this is where we can just start to see the goodness of the law. Because you could have a lawgiver who gives a bad law, couldn't you? And I think a lot of people maybe feel a bit this. They say, I get the concept of God who, who gives laws, but, but what's the deal with a God who needs to give laws, who needs to boss people around? Like, What does that show about him? And I think there's a few reasons that you could have someone giving a set of rules. You could do it as a dictator to suppress freedom and to kind of grow and contain your own power and build yourself up. Or I think another familiar example would be is how a parent gives rules to their children. Not to gain power for themselves, but to actually lay out a good way of living for the children. And I think as we walk through the Ten Commandments, we can see this type of motivation through it. As God is motivated by it for the flourishing and goodness of this of his people and society lays out these rules we're just going to walk through them because it may have been a while since you've um really even just kind of looked over the 10 commandments so commandment number one it says i am the lord your god who brought you out of the land of egypt out of the house of slavery you shall have no other gods before me This is an interesting commandment because it begins with a statement before it says what to do. And it's a statement of who God is. He says, I am the Lord, or literally it's I am Yahweh, God's personal name. And then he says, who is in relation to them? He says, I am Yahweh, your God. So it's not just any old God or any concept of God, but a personal God to the people of Israel. And it says what he's done. Who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And it's important not just to kind of skim over this line as we get into the commands, because what God is doing, before he tells these people to do anything at all, he reminds them of who he is. Because I think understanding and knowing God's character is so important as we think about his motivation in this. And he's reminding them that he's already a God who has saved. He's already a God who has shown mercy, who has rescued them, who has been generous and loving and kind to them before he's asked them to do any single thing. And it's making clear that these commands aren't the the prerequisite for gaining God's love or gaining a relationship with him. But for the people of Israel, it's the outflow of what God has already done in their lives. And so what does he say in light of that? He says, you shall have no other gods before me. And some people might say, well, that's kind of vainness or pettiness on God's part. But isn't it the case that if God is the ultimate goodness, the ultimate loving being, the the only real true God with the power to save. Why would you want anything before him? He's commanding the people, look, don't go back to any other gods. You've got to remember the context for the people of Israel. They were in slavery in Egypt, a land that had a pantheon of gods for all different things. And he's saying, look, leave those behind. Don't worship anything before me. Commandment 2 builds on the first. It says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is heaven above, or that is on the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the sun. We shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." It's a fleshing out of the first command, but getting a bit more practical. Where, in, Again, in, in the time of the Israelites, it was a common thing to have some physical representation of some God to worship, whether it's a statue or an, an image of the sun or the sun God or whatever it's going to be. And God is saying, No, why would you want to substitute? Why would you want something less, something that's actually not real, when you could have the God who can show steadfast love to thousands of generations? When, when, when the offer is on the table of knowing the true and living God. Command 3 says you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Often that people take this this line to mean something like don't, using, don't use God or Jesus as a swear word, which I'm not saying is a good thing to do, but that's not what this command is saying. What the command is saying is don't don't be ingenuine about walking through life with the name of God above you, with God's banner above you. Don't, don't, don't kind of be flippant or futile about calling yourself one of God's people. It's, it's really a command to be authentic in our expression of knowing God. We wouldn't just say, yeah, God's there is great, but that would actually transform lives. It's a command of the people not just to, to lose the substance of what it is to be a chosen person of God. Command 4. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. I read this week that there was a, a, a couple of years ago, a survey of just a bunch of ordinary people on the street, like a thousand people or so, and they asked each of them just to kind of, for each of the Ten Commandments, to say which ones were still relevant, which ones weren't. And this is the one that came back as the least relevant for today. Which I just thought was really interesting because it's a command to rest. To stop and to slow down and remember God. And it's kind of funny that like ex-slaves would need to be commanded to slow down and stop working one day a week. But I think it, like you can imagine if you've lived generations in slavery, you'd you'd create a sense of a worldview of yourself that what you are for is for productivity. You're for getting things done. That is where your value is. That is who you are. And God is saying to them, no, that's not what life's about. The ultimate goal in life isn't to be productive. It's not to get things done. The ultimate goal of life is to know God. And so he lays out a command just to stop, to go against the the worldview that we just need to be busy. And I think this is actually, funnily enough for me, I think this is one of the most relevant ones for our world today because we bind this idea that you are what you do or you are how much money you make or you are your success, or whatever it is, and God's saying, no, we need to remember Him, that He has freed us from the need to do anything with an outstretched arm. We need to trust God. Now, these first four commandments are a bit of a unit because they're all about like this kind of vertical dimension, how we're to remember God, how we're to treat Him, how we're, how we're to worship Him, how that's to play itself out. And these come up front because it's really in understanding these four that the the remaining six make sense, which are a lot more horizontal about how we relate to each other. We'll keep going through them. Commandment five, honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. This is an interesting one because I definitely think this one wouldn't make the top ten um, in, our, in our day and age because we don't have a real high view on honoring parents. So if you watch Disney movies, the, the goal of every Disney princess is to get out of the kind of mean rule of their father. And so it's kind of a bit countercultural in this, but I think in, just in reading through the context of the book, even last week as we, as we saw in the, in the opening chapters, parents have already been given a command, and they've already been given a command a couple of times in Deuteronomy, which is to teach your children to know and to trust and to love God. I think it's in that context that this command makes sense that children are are being told respect your parents because they are the ones who are going to lay out for you the path to life. They're going to be the ones who are telling you these stories that you need to trust and remember uh, of what God has done for you and to to keep that life alive. Commandments 6, 7, and 8 are the really quick ones and they're the ones that I think come to mind the most when you think of the Ten Commandments because they're just really snappy and, and easy to get your head around which is you, sh- you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal. They're just super concrete actions, and they're really the things that just form the foundations of a functioning society. And it's a command to not take God's place in, in deciding that you can just take someone's life whenever you feel like doing it. To not take God's place in, in treating marriage like it's something that can just be, be dissolved or you can just even ignore covenant commitment. Don't take God's place in thinking that you get to decide who has what and you can just have whatever you want at any given time. And these ones are easy to argue for the goodness for because not a single person here, I'm sure, wants to be robbed or murdered or cheated on. These are just good commandments for the flourishing of society. Commandment number nine, and you should not bear false witness against your neighbor. Often that just gets boiled down to don't lie, but it's this very specific example. Again, in a 3,000 years ago different sort of court legal system to what we have now, in a world where there's not fingerprints, video footage, the way that people would get convicted would be primarily through witness testimony. And so you've got to think in that context, it's probably a lot easier to get someone wrongly convicted. And so what people are being commanded to do is, if you've got a grudge against someone or if you want something that belongs to someone else, don't use the legal system as a way of kind of furthering yourself by lying about what someone else has done. It's just a a piece of society functioning and functioning well. And then commandment 10, And you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, this one's really a whole bunch of commandments, but the the whole thing is don't covet. And it's interesting, because as far as the laws go, this is probably the hardest one to prove that someone else is doing, because it's happening in the heart, but it's probably also the one that it's probably most easy to see yourself in. Uh, it's linked with the others because it's, it's actually going a bit deeper. It's saying don't just not have an affair. It's saying don't even entertain the thought that that would be good for you. Or it's saying don't just rob your neighbor of whatever they own and take their cattle or whatever it is. But don't even let that get a foothold in your heart to feel like your satisfaction, your contentment will be based on something that someone else has. This command not to covet your neighbor's house is one of the, I reckon, that's the one I'm most guilty of. I live in an apartment in Ashfield and walking around Ashfield is great because everyone's in an apartment and you just feel like, oh, we're all just apartment livers here. But when I, when I have to ride my bike to Balmain, I've got to cross Parramatta Road and ride through Haberfield, where every house is like big quarter acre block, beautiful gardens, there's a Tesla in every driveway. And it, you just got to kind of keep your eyes shut as you're driving through because you're starting thinking, why, why do these guys get all this good stuff down here? But that's the commandment. It's saying, look, just be content. Be happy with what you've got. It's a hard commandment to keep, but it's a good command if you can do it. So what we see as we go through these commands, this is a road map for a healthy, good society. Can you imagine living in a world where every single one of those commandments was kept to perfection? where you managed to do every single one of those perfectly and everyone around you, and you knew they would, there wasn't even a doubt that everyone around you would do the same thing, what would the world be like? If you're a locksmith, you're out of a job because no one would be locking doors. There'd be a lot less kids being brought up in, in broken homes. You wouldn't have to question whether you're being lied to or tricked or deceived at any point people kept the Sabbath, there'd be less burnout, there'd be less exhaustion, there'd be more time for fun and catching up with people. Parents and kids would get along. There'd be contentment. There wouldn't be advertising. There's no point in billboards or pop-up ads because you can't be sold anything if you're just happy with what you've got. You'd know God intimately and personally. You wouldn't waste time serving and, and pouring energy into these things that rob you of life and satisfaction. It's a, a great world. It's a great set of commands to, to, to live by. But the problem is that this isn't what the world's is like, is it? That's like not at all what the world's like. The world is, if you look around, it's just a constant string of everyone breaking all these things and a whole bunch more as well. This is just 10 commands out of, out of a, a lot more you could add to the list. And that leads us to the problem of the law. And I think what I'm hoping we can see through this is that there are really two ways the law leads to life. One is that the laws themselves are good and they lead to a fruitful, um, healthy human experience to keep them, like, a bit like a roadmap to the good life. But on another level, and I think this is the way that the New Testament interprets the law, is that in many ways it's more like a diagnostic tool. It's like getting an MRI. I I've not too long ago had to go and have an MRI 'Cause I've got a bad shoulder. And I loved the experience. You get to put in earplugs and earmuffs and lie in a tube for half an hour without anyone bothering you. It's it's really, really pleasant. <laughs> so I was, I was just lying there enjoying myself. But then anyway, it's a crazy piece of technology because then down a few week, a few days later you get given these, you know, images. And I, I loved getting mine out. It's a hundred different cross sections of my shoulder, different angles, different slices, some highlighting bones. Some highlighting b- so you can just like, s- lay these things out and just see a hundred different angles of how bad my shoulder is. <laughs> and it, it gives you this kind of comprehensive picture that you just couldn't get in any other way. I think on one level, that's a bit how the Ten Commandments function. Here's just, here's just ten. Here's just ten angles that you can kind of look at your own heart, and they deeply show what state we're in. But if you try to obey this law, it won't take long to realize that you can't. In the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul, this is writing after the time of Jesus. He's kind of exploring and thinking through this question, saying, look, if the law can't be kept, is the law a problem? And this is what he says. In Romans 7, verse 7, he says, What then shall we say? Is the law sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. If you jump ahead to verse 13, he then says, Did that which is good bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin. So he's saying, until you spend just one day trying not to want anything that belongs to someone else, do you, and until that point, you don't realize how, in, how deeply engrossed you are in coveting. It's a bit like I drink coffee every day, and I, if you ask me if you're addicted to coffee, I'll say no, but you, if I try to go one day without coffee, I'll realize the hold has got on me. It's that kind of dynamic. That's what he's saying. So he's saying, if you, if you try to worship God alone, you'll realize that your heart is leading you to invest in so many different things. If you try to rest and just stop and switch off for a day, like I know talking to people who have just tried to do Sabbath for a day, you can even just feel maybe some antsiness or the how, how it is that often your satisfaction is, is found in getting stuff done for validation. Trying not to murder might feel really easy, but Jesus says that hating someone is like murdering them in your heart or if you try not coveting, or if you try not bending the truth in some way for dishonest gain, we we realize this again and again and again, our hearts fall short. We're revealed to be broken beneath the surface. Now, I think it's really interesting that Christians who hold to the importance of God's law are often seen to be the ones who are the most judgmental. When you see kind of some Christian group out there in the world holding up a sign, condemning a group of people, you know, God's judgment comes for those who break the law, that that kind of thing. That's really the one thing you can't do in response to the law. The law isn't something like a tool that we can use to condemn others of their shortcoming. It's something that we apply, if we apply it to ourselves, it reveals us to be sinners. What the law doesn't do is it doesn't separate people out and saying, here's the people who are good and can keep the law, and then this group of people are the lawbreakers. What it does is actually unifies every single person under the one group of sinners. It reveals that we need help, that not a single person has kept the law, not even one. And the objection seems to be today that if a law makes us feel bad or says that we're sinful or broken, well, that's a problem with the law. We need to get rid of it. It's outdated because it's saying that we're not good enough. And we end up just keeping the laws that we feel like we can do and then we can look down on others who can't do them. But the law puts everyone in the same basket, we are all sinners. And so this is how Paul ends his section on the law in Romans 7. Says, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind, and making me a captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am who will deliver me from this body of death. Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. The only way to understand the law is to realize that we are wretched. That when you actually just take the introspection and the self-analysis required to look at your life in light of God's standard, we realize that we are broken, that we need help. The way the law leads to life is not that it is the cure, but it is the... It is the diagnosis that leads us to ask, well, then where can we be cured? Where can we be saved? And that takes us to the hope of the law. The law points us to the one person who could actually live up to its standards. Jesus was the only person to actually live out this law, to lead the perfect life, and to be righteous. Yet he took the punishment of a lawbreaker. He died and took God's anger in our place. We find it hard not to sin. I find it hard not to think about strangling a bird right now. <laughs> it just reveals like, my heart, it's on my mind. It's, this, it's, not, it's never too far, is it? Like these, these thoughts. It reveals part of my heart that I would, I would step on a bird. But, um, but Jesus, who lived the perfect life with just peace and humility and grace, died in our place that we might have life. And the good news of Christianity, and this is what we have here at City Light to hold out to the the world, is that even though we can't make ourselves righteous, Jesus can. And in knowing his grace and forgiveness, that is the best, most life-giving thing we can ever know. So I just want to just challenge that idea again, that the Christian moral code and law is just something of the past that needs to be dispensed with. Because our world desperately needs to find a source of objective moral truth. We might even know what good is and what evil is, so that we might pursue what is good and, and shun what is evil. That we wouldn't just be left to figuring out ourselves what is right and what is wrong, because that, that changes generation in, generation out, but to know that there is a God who made us that has held out what is good. But we also need, our world needs humility. It needs people that can have a, a right self assessment to know that, look, there isn't some people are the solution and others are the problem, but we are all part of the problem that we all before God stand as wretched people just needing forgiveness. But the reason we need it as well, is because it points us to Jesus, that Jesus is the giver of life, but it's only in recognizing our need that we can come to him and we can say, yeah, I've fallen short, but thank you for what you've done, that you have loved me and you have shown your mercy to me. So I'm going to pray in light of this now. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just wanted to thank you for your word we've been able just to reflect on this um just these truths this this way that you've revealed yourself this this path that you've laid out for the israelites and and what that shows about who you are and how you care for us but lord i just want to just reflect on the on the knowledge that you are a god who is not standing in judgment over us for the way that we've fallen short you are not a God who is frowning right now or condemning or looking down on us, but you're a God who is smiling upon us because you see us as you see your son, Jesus. Even though we have just these daily reminders of our own shortcomings, our failures, that you have loved us, that Jesus, the perfect one, was died in our place, that we might have life. And so we just pray that we would be a humble people, that we would actually have a reputation in the world of being people of of life and of light, not standing over others, not looking down on others, but inviting people in to see that you're a good God, that you have died for them, that you're our deepest need. And praise in Jesus' name. Amen.